This is John Deke with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers. It's a program of the New York Philharmonic, and the music we're hearing is from Angelique Inzeo's Harlem Renaissance Reborn. This is scene 13, the coming of Pierre Boulez and a narrow escape. Yes, it was a shame that LB had relinquished the music directorship of the New York Philharmonic, but he was still with us and would be until the year he passed away in 1990. Meanwhile, George Sell, who was to be the music director designate, had passed away himself early in 1970. So the board of directors had decided to appoint Pierre Boulez to the position of music director in 1971. This was an amazing decision and ultimately a blessing for me and the future of the very young composers. Pierre Boulez was an enfant terrible, a radical revolutionary in the immediate post-war area. He had jumped on the stage during an important Stravinsky performance of La Basée de la Fée, The Fairy's Kiss, and made a speech about Stravinsky's latest works as being too reactionary for the present age. That is, they sounded too much like Tchaikovsky in the 19th century. Boulez had a very different view from my conception of the avant-garde, musically, however, but he was a revolutionary thinker who I greatly admired. One of his first actions as a music director was to re-audition all the orchestra members who were still on probation. That meant me, among three other members. The audition was to take place on the Carnegie Recital Hall stage, and although I was still in prime shape for this eventuality, I was quite nervous. I began the audition with the Mozart Per Questa Bella Mano, which features the contrabass. When Boulez asked for my second solo, I told him I was going to play a section from my own composition, Surrealist Studies, entitled Woman and Bird Before the Moon by Juan Miró. The new personnel manager, James Chambers, hastened up to me breathlessly. You can't do that, he said, whispering. Don't you have some standard repertoire you can play? I answered, this is my choice. So I played the piece, which used some new techniques on the bass that I had figured out, and I think had some influence from George Crum as well. Anyway, Boulez smiled. The rest was history for us. Boulez and I gradually developed a relationship accompanied by my then stand partner, Shelley Saxon. Boulez did not erase the legacy of LB as much as present an alternative vision. I was astounded at Pierre's approach of how to craft a performance. A case in point will suffice. At a recording at the old Manhattan Center on 34th Street, Pierre was to lead the Daphnis and Chloe suite number two of Ravel. The score opens famously with the depiction of dawn over the ocean. Detailed in its masterful orchestration are woodwind 32nd notes over a low wave-like surging of basses. It would always be one of my favorite and most powerful orchestral images. The 32nd notes are usually passed over as excess frill. Boulez, however, meticulously tuned each and every note individually. This seemed like madness to me at first, but listening to the takes, 
I immediately realized how the clarity and pitch of each note made the whole passage sparkle as never before. That performance stands as a monumental achievement in recording history for me. Details! It became a constant cry for me to my students later on in the very young composers. Details matter! Just as brushstrokes detailing a cloud, a smile, a gesture of the hand bring a painting to vivid life, so a composition and its performance might be made compelling by a deft stroke of orchestration. For instance, the child might say, I want to depict a storm in my music. So I answer, you want to depict a storm? Good. What kind of storm? Are the people or animals frightened? Is the storm welcome or bringing rain or threatening and destruction? Is it sudden or gradual? Low or shrill? How shrill? Sing it for me. Again, please. Okay, great. Then what? Now, what instruments you want to play this? Low or high? And so forth. Woo! Labor-intensive, right? How many times this exhaustive questioning has resulted in a miraculous little work of art completely by the child? Oh my God! The child rarely gets tired of this kind of questioning, I can tell you, since they realize they are getting all this attention and being taken seriously. But again, I get ahead of myself. Well, life in the orchestra was never boring, whatever else it might be. There were even some hilarious moments. I remember one time we had a guest conductor who seemed to be upset with everything. I think it was Skrovashevsky. We had at that time a venerable English horn player named Engelbert Brenner. Suddenly the conductor stops the orchestra. English horn, you, you are late. Why do you not play here? Sorry, sir, the instrument didn't speak. That's no excuse. Engelbert shrugs his shoulders. Maestro, I play what I can. What comes out, comes out. What doesn't, stays in. Not only were we rolling with laughter, but I thought, hmm, now there's a life lesson to be learned there. I remember another time it was uh, Daniel Berenboim, who as a young man was regaling the orchestra with, uh, with criticism. He said, Piano, piano, you're not playing piano, piano. That's not a piano, that's a Goyesha piano. <laughs> there were some who took offense at that, but come on, what are you going to do? In 1972-73, several events which occurred once more changed the course of my life and in one instance determined whether I'd live or die. So this is a contrast here of mood. <laughs> This last-mentioned event was during a summer vacation trip down to the North Carolina coast near Cape Hatteras. We had enjoyed the beach, Carol was asleep in the motel, and I decided to do a little body surfing. Fun, since the surf was rising. A storm also seemed to be coming, and the beach was deserted. <laughs> I didn't pay much attention, like a fool. As a mountaineer, I often went into the teeth of a storm, taking shelter or retreating only when lightning was imminent. Anyway, I was swimming out to catch the next wave when I noticed the water below me was turning brown with turbulence. Aha, I said to myself, thinking I was smart. This is just a riptide. I'll swim to the side to get out of it. But I didn't get out of it.
I was carried out past the surf at an astonishing rate. The whole ocean seemed to be carrying me out to sea. In minutes I lost sight of land. For three hours I struggled to stay on the surface, although by now huge waves in the middle of the ocean were breaking over my head, submerging me. Each time I fought to the surface was more difficult. I was exhausted, losing body temperature for sure. I began to imagine a world above the clouds, peaceful, green. If I could only stop struggling and allow myself to enter this world as a child, all would be well. Or would it? A kind of inner war set in between panic and acceptance. As I knew, I was lost. Aha! Perhaps there was a world above the endless water, because look, there's a castle suspended above the waves, defying gravity, and there, there are children playing on it. Why children? Hmm. But if only I can swim over to it, if only... And the next thing I knew, as I was losing consciousness, was the castle approaching me, and a hand, two hands, were pulling me up into a large boat. They had me face down on the deck, pulling my arms and pressing on me as water came streaming out of my mouth. I was alive. Through my choking and coughing, I remember them asking me how I got out there, and as I tried to answer, thinking I was speaking normally, they told me later that I said only one word slowly every 30 seconds or more. I looked at my fingers, dark purple. It wasn't a castle, it was a Coast Guard amphibious boat. An old man, evidently walking his dog on the beach, had seen me pulled out to sea and had alerted the Coast Guard. Their nearest amphibious boat was two hours away and they had almost turned back, thinking that there was no way I could still be alive. Carol was by then on the beach wondering what the fuss was about. The rescue crew, amazingly, pronounced me well enough to be left at the motel. And I was never able to locate the old man or to properly thank the Coast Guard except for sending them a letter. Well, so thankful to be simply alive, that extreme experience I took as a sign to somehow dedicate my life even more to helping children and young people and becoming the best musician I could be to help that cause. Also, Carol and I, unable to have children ourselves, had been haggling over whether to adopt a child or not. I'd been hesitant, but with this experience now, I became open to the idea of adoption, and by December of that year, we were blessed with a baby boy whom we named Alexander, or Alex. Alex. 